When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Talk is about to begin. Hey, 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 come on in. Welcome back to Buckeye Talk. Stephen Means, Nathan Bear. This is your Monday Buckeye Talk, which means it's a rewatch of Ohio State's 20 to 12 win over Penn State, their second top 10 win of the season. Uh, per the new AP rankings, first of all, just Nathan, let's start there. Any first place votes for Ohio State coming off the, a win over the number seven team in the country? But then also, where are Notre Dame and Penn State right now? Because it matters where they are in the moment. Can Ohio State still say it has wins over two teams currently ranked in the top 15? Yes. Penn okay. State dropped from seven to 10, and, and Notre Dame, which I believe was idle last week, moved up one spot to 14. So, yes, two top 15 wins, one top 10 win. And Notre Dame's climbing, and there's some other teams that I think are maybe they're actually good, maybe they're not. And if Notre Dame can just sort of sustain, they can creep back up and make that a top 10 win again. And I think those are both wins that are going to be favorable, especially the, that road, Notre Dame game being a road win. And the fact that they went, I know US, USC just lost again, but they lost to a ranked team close in Utah. So, I mean, that's going to have value when those first playoff rankings come out. And I'm going to be very intrigued to see where they put Ohio State's resume against the metrics of Michigan, which are impressive and are complete. And that's going to be an interesting combination. I would not be surprised if they are 1-2. Maybe kick Florida State in there a little bit. Florida State with several ranked wins now, right? Or at least wins against teams that I think the committee is going to um, give some... some uh, Credence to, but Ohio State did pick up some more number one votes. So they they are still only number three. They're behind Georgia, behind Michigan, which and Michigan keeps picking up more number one votes each week too. They've gone from eleven to sixteen to eighteen or nineteen, nineteen I think over the last three weeks. But Ohio State went from one to three, and I had texted on Sunday morning and said, "Don't be surprised if the two first place votes that Washington had last week are now Ohio State votes." And I don't know if it worked out exactly. Those two voters to those two voters, we'll be able to see that when those are are uh, public here later today. If they may even be already, I, I don't really follow that as close. But Washington had two first place votes last week; it has none, and Ohio State has three. And when it had one, so so maybe it did exactly work. Maybe people were like, "Oh, fifteen to seven against Arizona State." Eh, maybe those two votes should be for the team that um, actually went out and uh, beat a, a quality opponent. Michigan is going to be a really interesting case because they're on a bye off week. 
this upcoming Saturday. So they this is it. This is their resume heading into the first college football playoff rankings. Yeah. And I think it's you're measuring their metrics and how dominant they've looked, even if it's against absolutely nobody versus other teams who have resumes, even if they haven't always looked so dominant. And how much does the committee value one or the other? And the reason we're talking about the AP poll rankings is this is really the last time they're going to matter. Because quite frankly, next Tuesday, yeah. college football playoff rankings come out and then we're going to be basing everything off of that. So right now, Ohio State has two top 15 wins on its plate. It might have two top 10 wins next Tuesday, depending on where the committee ranks Penn State and Notre Dame. No, that's a good point to make sure it's in that context of, you know, what the AP poll panel has as a top 10, 15 win is not necessarily going to be the same as what the committee does because the committee votes differently with with things like resume more in mind than the average AP voter does. I think you're right, though, because here's the thing. Like, I'm just trying to put myself in the mind. Let's switch the names, right? Let's give Ohio State. Michigan's results this year, and let's give Michigan Ohio State's results, just the final scores and the the totality of it, no matter how it happened, then you would still have Michigan fans now saying, Ohio State hasn't played anybody. Look at who we've beaten. And Ohio State fans would be saying, well, but we've just been beating everybody so completely. I mean, go look at every metric says our offense and our defense are among are like the best in the country or the, among the very best in the country all across every computer, every every person, every every robot that puts this together says that, that we're, we're great. And they'd both be right. So right now, I think they're both right. And that's what's great about the sport is they're going to get to finally decide it on November 25th, head to head. But as it relates to a week from Tuesday, I, I, you, I am very curious whether the committee will. And the other thing to remember here, too, is this is not as much as they say it's about the games that are played this year and they watch every game and it's inclusive to this year and all that stuff. The fact that Michigan is a been to the playoff the last two years affects this a little bit I think that the committee will say this is a team that has has now consistently they are not like it's not an outlier of performance because this is the expected performance now from Michigan they are living up to and in some ways even exceeding the expectation of their performance I know I know I know everybody right now yelling at their yelling at their phone or however you listen to this um I know they've played barely like nobody. I understand. Ohio State's about to play Wisconsin. I know Iowa beat Wisconsin heads up. Penn State beat Iowa. Michigan hasn't played anybody though. And like I think Wisconsin might be better than anybody Michigan's played so far. Do you think that's true? They're better right? than Minnesota, Nebraska. Man, well, maybe not Certainly Rutgers. better than Nebraska. Rutgers bowl eligible, but definitely better than Nebraska, Rutgers Minnesota, is, Indiana, and Michigan. Rutgers State. is bowl eligible. But Rutgers hasn't necessarily beaten anybody of of that, that deserves a lot of respect, frankly, so far. Good, good for them. Great for them, actually. Six mm-hmm. wins, and they've got a they've got a chance to go seven, eight, maybe by the time this thing's done. But you know, well, all I'm saying is like I think this this Wisconsin game that Ohio State has coming up will be yet another game, another opponent better than anybody Wisconsin's played that Ohio State has a chance to beat. And I think if Ohio State were to really go up there and put something on Wisconsin, it helps them maybe if they care be number one in that first thing. But we also know that all this is great podcast fodder, but Ohio State's been in a better position than Michigan in the last two years going into the game and hasn't won the game. And in one of those years, didn't even make the playoff. So that's the step. Win that game. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Just win that game and then the robots and and, and all the all the jerks in that room. I'm sure. No, they're not jerks. They're fine people, I'm sure. Boo Corrigan and the, his whole crew. Um, uh, 
don't let them be the determiner. Let let this be a thing that you just go out and, and win yourself. And that performance on Sunday, Saturday, yesterday, we're recording this on Sunday, was a huge step in that direction. Like that was a, I think the committee is going to look at that win. And sure, it came with some offensive warts, but it was a complete win. And watching it again, I never lost that feeling of how I thought Ohio State, especially its defense, was controlling that game. And sometimes you would forget, and you'd look down at the scoreboard and be like, "Oh, yeah, it's only ten to six. Like this thing is tight. Like this thing, this thing turns on a dime at, at any second. But Ohio State's defense was just in such control of that game. So I think if if Ohio State can go to Wisconsin on the road against a coach that has been a playoff coach and that the committee probably respects, if you go up to Wisconsin and and you find a way to put a forty burger up there and uh, with cheese because it's Wisconsin, then uh, I think that helps you a week from Tuesday if you're Ohio State. So let's start with defense as we get into this rewatch here. Ohio State held Penn State to, I believe, 3.5 yards per play on Saturday, and they came into the game yep. allowing four yards per play. I think the most impressive thing Ohio State did defensively is they made Penn State have to throw the ball because they had no other option. Nicholas Singleton had nine carries for 48 yards. 20 of those yards came on one carry. So it's eight carries for 28 yards the rest of the game. Katron Allen, nine carries for 26 yards. Eight of that came on one carry. So that's eight carries for 18 yards the rest of the day. As a team, it's 26 carries for 49 yards. Now, of course, Drew Aller got sacked a couple of times, so you take those minus 23 yards as well. But for 26 carries, 49 yards, that's 1.9 yards per carry. Penn State tried to establish the run in the first quarter. And I thought they got off to a pretty solid start there. Jim Knowles even got asked about it. I think they were averaging maybe 8.8 yards per carry. And Jim Knowles was like, oh, I was just calling some bad plays there. That's just on me. That's bad play calling. He always, maybe, he always maybe says it, that. Yeah. yeah, he always says that. But the point is, he made adjustments, but also a guy started playing better. And for the rest of the game, Penn State could not run the ball. And so it allowed this defensive line to tee off on Drew Aller time after time after time. Yeah, uh, it was exactly, I mean, it was textbook what you would have expected them to try to do, right? And we had talked about it coming into the game. Like, how does Ohio State keep Singleton and Allen from going off and put this game on Drew Aller's shoulders? And we can talk about this. I think there are definitely ways where this team let Drew Aller down a little bit. He was very self-critical after this game. I'm sure that this was a very emotionally difficult game for him to come back to Ohio, to have all the expectations. I mean, think of that. It's like you are not the primary reason why people think Ohio State was going to win the game. So now it's almost like, well, can you just be good enough for – for? I'm sorry, I think I said Ohio State. I meant Penn State. Can you be the thing that kind of what Ohio State asks Comacord to do in some ways? Like can you just come in and run things and be fluid – and, and be sort of this catalyst for the reason why we win the game. Like, can you just not get in the way? And then when you lose, it feels almost more on you in, in, in some ways. And maybe to him, to him. I'm just trying to get in his his head here. So I, I, I was watching this and felt at times a little bad for him because I think, you know, we made such a big deal. I made such a huge deal because I was counting it the whole game of that third down performance. And I think there were three at least just like blatant drops by Penn State players on third down. The one that was the one where he swung it out of the backfield was it to Singleton and he just like took one step and dropped it and like <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and, Single- and you were just like, well, now it's it, that's just it. Like they can't th- this was I was I was shocked at the lack of I don't want to dwell on this cuz we need to talk about what Ohio State did great. But I want to talk about it in this context. 
the, the lack of just any electricity from this Penn State offense and compare that to what Ohio State had. And I know Ohio State has some limitations on offense right now that they're working through and, and hoping to improve on, whether that's the offensive line, whether that's some things in Common Court's game, whatever. But at least they've got guys who who have some electricity to them, have some juice to them when you get the ball in their hands. And Penn State had none. And that's not me trying to undercut the Ohio State defensive performance. It's me um, trying to further um, punctuate how Ohio State is farther along as a program and uh, is a uh, is a tier above Penn State, and this is why. And Penn State having just no receiving talent at all, basically, is I don't know how that's even allowed. <laughs> I don't know how you get to a game like this <laughs> against a team that has that many receivers. Like, think you know, Jim Knowles came into the post game press conference and said this wasn't just a game against Penn State's offense. This was a game against Penn State's defense. I told my guys when they make a play, we have to make a play. If they make two plays, you have to make two plays. So like Sean Connery and the Untouchables, like they send one of yours to the hospital, you send one of theirs to the morgue. We didn't quite get that far, but. He was definitely understanding that you're about to play a great defense. That means you have to be a great defense. Well, Penn State was coming in and playing not a great Ohio State offense, but certainly great offensive players, Marvin Harris Jr., Kate Stover becoming relative to his position, a very, very good offensive player, at least at least a receiving tight end. And Penn State just had nobody to live up to that. And I thought it was, yeah, exactly what Jim Knowles probably had been scheming not just this week, but in the back of his mind as you're probably trying to catch glimpses of Penn State as this thing is progressing all season. Like, what do you want to do to this team if you just bottle up Singleton and, and Allen, who, again, frankly, we've said multiple times coming into this game have not been impressive all season, really. And uh, I was texting with a, a Penn State um, grad a friend of mine after the game last night, and he's like, yeah, we have no idea like why why that's happening, like why why they just fallen off a cliff. But they, they, Jim Knowles and this defense did exactly what I think they had to have been seeing in their dreams all week, which was let this running game, for the most part, have no breathing room and then make this game all about third down execution by a quarterback who is even less experienced than Comic Accord, even younger than Comic Accord. Probably, I would, from what I saw yesterday, like not yet as, as skilled as Cal McCord and make him have to make the toughest plays of the game over and over and over and over again. Like this defense right now has ultimate confidence that if it's making people drive, it's not going to give up points. First and foremost, it's embarrassing that a program whose head coach is a wide receiver coach by trade has no wide receiver talent. I mean, Imagine if Ohio State had no quarterback talent. This is your, this is what you're good at. This is what you're best at, and you have nothing. That's not good. So that that's I, – I do think as much as it was about the lack of talent on Penn State, I do think it still plays into what Ohio State was able to do because yeah. they got after Drew Aller. He never completed more than two passes in a row. Ever. And he had opportunities too, but Nicholas Singleton had a drop. K. John Allen had a drop, and that plays into it, but never completed more than two passes in a row. While he had a streak at one point where he was 10 of 23, and then he missed his next nine passes. And a lot of those were, and, that, and that's on third down, fourth down, first down, second down, first down, first down, second and 30, third and 30, first and 10. They were all over the yeah. map with it. They just got after him, and they made Drew Aller prove to them that he could win a football game. 
way, way earlier than he was ready to do. We, we talked about that a lot with CJ Stroud in Oregon, where I was like, he wasn't ready to do that yet. But yeah, he was like 75% there at least, right? Maybe 80% oh. there. He just wasn't yeah. ready to finish the job. This Drew Aller wasn't ready to even take step one of winning a football game for you. And you could tell from the first drive, and then you could it felt like the defense was like, oh yeah, this guy's not going to be able to win the game today. We're just going to go after him. And we're going to send waves at him and waves at him. Jim Knowles blitzed. JT Tui Malowau, Kenyatta Jackson got into the mix. And I'll get into that later on in this podcast. But anytime Jim Knowles wanted to pressure Drew Aller, he could. And it worked every single time. Well, and a lot of it, though, was... They, they definitely mixed in some blitzes. And some of them, like, incredibly well-timed. We talked about the Jordan Hancock one after the game. And and there were some others that we can go through, like, itemize the, a little bit. But but it was... The Sonny Styles one was, yeah. uh, I think... because That was a great... Because they sent... Sonny Styles behind JT Tui Malowau, knowing JT is going to get most of the attention there. But JT just wins anyway, so now they're both trying to get to the quarterback at the same time, and Sonny just cleans it up. But I thought that was yeah. the execution well, of it, but then like the idea of it was just as good. It was almost similar to what in 19 we would see with Baron Browning sometimes where they would send him behind Chase Young, and that's how he got a lot of his sacks. Well, and they've done that before, too. They've been sending him um, uh, in tandem with Tommy Eichenberg a couple times this, mm-hmm. this season. And what's Really interesting about Styles as a athlete in that situation now, and it happened on this play, was he comes off the right edge like that. Allard does what he's supposed to do. He steps up into the pocket. He's still looking to make a play. But Styles, because of his length, and then how like deceptively strong he is for that length, just grabs him, pulls him down, and now you got a sack. And there aren't a lot of athletes in the Big Ten, really, who can do that from that position who you can put as a, a slot defensive back and have them make that play on and have them on the field on early downs and have that combination of speed and length and strength. And it's just, that's, that's the Sonny Styles excitement in a bottle. And it's, it just right now he's at a stage of his career where it's just flashes, but sometimes like really important flashes like that. And whenever that finally all starts rolling downhill, Ohio State's going to have uh, a lot of fun. The Jordan Hancock blitz, we, we talked about that. The other one I wanted to talk about from a blitz standpoint was in the third quarter, I think it was. So they were making, like Joel Klatt multiple times on the broadcast was like, no, they just keep this high safety up there and they just don't do the all-out blitzes. Like last year they did the all-out blitzes and it cost them so many times. Like he brought that up multiple times. And then what do they finally do on um, on that third and two then they just bring the house. <laughs> and Josh Proctor, uh, that's when he gets – it's a third and two play. He stuffs him for a three-yard loss. I mean, there were some huge blitzes in this game on run plays. And Jim Lewis was talking after the game because I asked specifically about the Hancock one. And because I don't think I recognized at the in the second in, that it happened in the game how much of a, a – that that was really a zero on, that Proctor was coming on. And we're not always watching the broadcast when these things – happen in game we kind of go back and forth but the hancock one was clearly a blitz but uh we're just right through the b gap but the, the zero blitz one so to talk about that one the hancock one Knowles said i asked i kind of prefaced the question by it being like something he called and i guess in a way he did but it's called based on what coverage they're going to be playing and he said that penn state was doing a good job of like huddling and not giving away their formations and it made it tougher to blitz so i only had ohio state with 10 blitzes um, and actually, I think I might have cut this off before I did the last 
the last last series that that Penn State had, but I had I had Ohio State down with ten blitzes on sixty eight plays. Like that's that's not a big percentage of plays to be blitzing on. You're talking about what what's that like thirteen fourteen percent of of plays something like that. And it Ohio State used to be way higher a year ago. That would have been way higher. And he said that it was just Jordan Hancock recognizing the formation. Like when they saw that formation, they've done enough film study and they know their scheme well enough that the combination of that, Jordan Hancock knew, I have the B-gap. When I see this formation, I just am a bolt of lightning through the B-gap. He hits the guy. He doesn't take him down, but then Eichenberg and Ty Hamilton take him down, and that's the end of that play. Um, and then the, the the Proctor one, again, I just thought that that was like just such a, you're waiting for the one time all game where you hit them with that zero blitz, and knowing that the way that Penn State had been playing, it was getting a little bit predictable that uh, if it's third and short like that, they're probably going to run it. It was almost becoming like what Penn, what Ohio State has gotten itself um, guilty of in some of these short yarded situations. But I think Penn State trusts its passing game even less, with good reason, than Ohio State does. And so I, it, it, it looked probably like a obvious passing situation to them and or rushing situation I'm, I should say and it was just a, a perfect timing on that and Proctor cleaned it up and it's it's a lot of the it's kind of what I wrote something about for the site on Sunday morning was this is what year two of Knowles was definitely supposed to look like year one should have looked better I don't think anyone is is mm-hmm. saying that I think year one should have been a little bit cleaner I think there you could argue that they should have made some adjustments in the it, he should have made some adjustments faster than he did but this is what year two is supposed to look like when you have a combination of the comfortability that all of these players have in the second year of this system and the knowledge that, you know, Ryan Day was saying this after the game about Jim Knowles, that like, I, he, I feel like he's getting a better feel for this conference. I feel like he's getting a better feel for this personnel. And all of those factors kind of converging together are what is making this defense great. It's not, it is individual performances. JT Tumalo out has been great. Denzel Burke couldn't play Saturday, but he's been great. Like there's great performances all over the place, Tyleek Williams. But it's really the the convergence of those those three things, like his knowledge of the personnel, his knowledge of the opposition, but then the players' knowledge of Jim Knowles. All three of those things are mixed together and you saw this was the best example of it that we've seen. Penn State not that electric on offense, but they were completely suffocated on on Saturday. What helps with those blitzes, especially once he went zero blitz, is when he did it last year, his corners couldn't hold up. They couldn't cover. Yeah, that's a great point. Now, yep. it, was a, it, was a, it was a mixture of talent level, but injuries, whatever you want to throw at it. The point of the matter is the co- corners couldn't get the job done. Here's but, the target distribution for these corners in, on Saturday. Jordan Hancock, three for seven for 18 yards. Davison Igbenosin, two for six, 31 yards. Jermaine Matthews, when he would come in on those third down situations, because Jordan Hancock and Davis Igbenosin started, yep. and they were your outside corners. And then anytime it was a clear passing situation, Jordan Hancock would go inside, which is where he was when he came on that blitz. And then Jermaine Matthews would replace him as that field corner spot. Jermaine Matthews, three of seven for 29 yards. So the fact these corners were locked down, and they went at Jermaine Matthews at times. They went deep at him as well. There was one deep ball I remember specifically where Drew Aller just kind of threw a dud. And so yeah, I think if he had thrown a throw, bit, yeah. yeah, it was, if it would no, that's pressure. That was pressure that got to him. Yeah. If he'd have had a chance to set his feet there, I don't want to say Jermaine Matthews would have got a DPI in that situation, but 
young player getting a DPI in that situation, that makes a lot of sense. But because the ball was underthrown so badly, both Jermaine Matthews and the wide receiver had to come get it, and he just got a pass breakup. But all three of those corners held up in coverage and really kind of dominated in coverage at times. So when you have that, that allows your pass rush to get there. That allows Jim Knowles to feel a little bit more comfortable blitzing, and it doesn't feel like it's erratic because if you blitz and don't get home, you're giving up a 60-yard touchdown. Yeah, eight, giving up for Hancock, 18 yards on seven targets, and those are the PFF stats I assume you're, you're reading off there. Um, so yeah. assuming those are correct, that's kind of crazy like that's 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 really efficient to be against any offense really and you're that's a good point to make that that this cornerback group has also taken and again I think that's Knowles knowing the personnel better this year because last year I think he made those calls as if he had these cornerbacks and they weren't there yet they or in the ones that could have been they, they were just they were held back by the injuries they it was just a rough gear for that cornerback room and this year, I think he has reason to have more confidence, but then is also calling those plays less. He's just been more judicious with it. Um, and, and again, remember that this came, we're talking about this confidence in the cornerbacks without Denzel Burke, without Denzel Burke on the field on Saturday. Uh, Ryan Day said that he was close this week. and But then he also said, if he can practice all next week, then he'll play at Wisconsin, which tells me that what we saw on Wednesday, which was... What we didn't mm-hmm. see, which was not seeing Denzel Burke, tells you that he probably was not a a heavy practice participant this past week, as we as we basically knew, and that I think they probably again as huge as this game was, I guess if you can't practice, you're not going to throw him out there on Saturday. So now again, this win just has huge ramifications because you get through this win, missing some of the most lethal bullets in your chamber. And now you get to get those guys healthy during this stretch that takes you towards Ann Arbor. Um, but yeah, I think that, I think that's a great point about just the, the quality of the defensive backs this year and how much Knowles can trust them. But also, even though he can, can trust them more, he is being just more, uh, he's picking his moments more with these blitzes. I think the way Ryan Day talked about Denzel Burke on Saturday, I'd actually be shocked if he played this week either. It just, if you're not a, a normal participant in practice for a full week like that, that doesn't tend to go away after a week. So, of the three yeah. important guys they need back from a long term perspective, Emeka Buka, Travion Henderson, and Denzel Burke, I think I'm least, I, I have the least amount of confidence that we see him again any earlier yeah. than Michigan State. I think that's probably a fair thing to speculate, especially because you're talking about a road game. So now you're mm-hmm. traveling a guy. And does, you know, does that allow an injury to tighten up? I could see him still traveling, though, and doing what some of these other guys have done, which is get extra work in before the game, working out with the, you've got the athletic trainers there, you're getting extra attention, you're getting to do your full week of workouts, but you just decide before the game. And listen, like, Trevin Henderson and Emeka Buka were both in uniform. Ryan Day called Trevin Henderson unavailable when we talked to him after the game. Mm Mm-hmm. We kind of wondered the way that they were dressed and everything. Did that mean that they could play? Was it just gamesmanship? But if they had needed them to play, would they have played? It sounds like no, especially for Henderson. Probably no also for Ibuka, just the way that he's talking about those things. But do you let Denzel Burke come up and dress and, and go through everything and if he's healthy enough, but then just decide not to put him in the game? Um, I could see that happening too. They don't need him. They, I mean, they shouldn't need him to beat Wisconsin. 
they do need him to beat Michigan. That's how you can look at basically every position on the field, I think, for this mm-hmm. next month is, you know, respect these opponents, fear none of these opponents, and know that uh, you are on a trajectory that if you get everybody healthy to November 25th, uh, that is your best chance to beat them. A couple more things defensively that I noticed from the rewatch. One, JT Tuimaloa sack. Teams have got to stop with this idea of not blocking with him with an offensive lineman and trying to bring a tight end from the other side and beating him to the punch. It's just, it's not working. This is hilarious. Like, like, what do we do? This is like the third week in a row where we've seen somebody try to do that. He's faster than your tight end. He he talked about that in the preseason, how his get off is better. And you get to really see it when they decide to not block him with offensive linemen. But it's like they crash the tight end in, in Olu on his side to worry about something else and expecting this tight end from the opposite side to get here. And I'm like, what are you doing? This might be the best play on the field. Why are you trying to only block him with a tight end from the other side? So kudos to take JT Tumaloal for getting that sack. Mike Yursich and James Franklin, y'all got to do better. That's just, that's not going to cut it when you're talking about a guy who might be a first-round draft. Yeah, I, I really didn't understand. I mean, there may be tight ends out there that you can do that with, but the teams that have tried to do it, are not using those tight ends to try to do it. And I, I actually like laughed out loud while while rewatching the game and seeing that in like in with with a second set of eyes. Because I don't again, one of those things that maybe I didn't notice it as vividly in real time. No, he just completely victimized them on that. And I don't on the first play of the fourth quarter, I have it in my notes like tight end very slow to help. But I think that was he may have been going like full speed and that's just not gonna to cut it there. But there you're right. There have been like multiple instances of that now. Was it the Maryland game where he came down the line or was that just last week and against got the, Purdue? I, I can't I, remember. He had like, one against I think he had one against no, Purdue. That might have been sack. Yeah. Yeah. And then he had one against Maryland where it was just a TFL. And all three times I'm like, why is this what we're doing to try to block this kid? It's like at some point, man, we got to stop doing. But I mean, kudos. To, that was his only actual stat as far as a pass rusher because he got the tackle t- TFL and sack all in that, and he had the pass breakup earlier in the game or later. I can't remember, but he didn't have like the biggest box score game, especially coming off of last year where the numbers well, backed up how you felt. But you felt him, I think, for all well, four quarters. And it was interesting. So there were two names that we brought up all week, maybe three if you include Chop Robinson, and then him getting hurt does change this game. But there were two other names that we kept bringing up all week. We even wrote like special matchup posts with our buddies from Live to talk about these two names. And it was Kalen King. We'll put a pen in that and get to it in a, a later segment. And it was Olaf mm-hmm. Fashanu, the left tackle. Well, Ohio State lined Sawyer up over Fashanu for most of the game and kept Tua Molau at the other mm-hmm. end. And JT was working that guy pretty good. And... Alar, he didn't get to him a lot, but Alar was just constantly rushed. It was constantly had to know that presence in the back of his head. And you already are coming into this game with a little bit of an advantage because of what Drew Alar watched you do the year before to Sean Clifford. Mm -hmm. And knowing and respecting, just respecting that presence and knowing that you're always, he's going to always have to be aware of where you are and how fast you're coming if you're JT to him a low out. And I thought he worked that guy pretty well. But then they really picked their moments to put him over on top of Fashanu. And then that was Fashanu mm-hmm. that he beat, and you put a clip on Twitter um, of uh, that play in the fourth down, where, or in the fourth quarter, a uh, fourth down play in the fourth quarter, where he just takes him and, and, and rides him all the way back into Drew Aller's lap and, yeah. and, and gets his elbow on that pass, on that fourth down pass, and had no chance of getting to anybody. And, you know, it, it wasn't 
a complete domination from a statistical standpoint to a ridiculous degree like last year's game was. Like that is just a once in a lifetime kind of thing. But this was almost as crucial. It didn't put points on the board the way last year's did. And they needed those points mm-hmm. to win that game. So, and they needed those takeaways to win that game. So it's not quite that level, but this was a pretty great performance too. And the fact that he, they were able to really pick their moments on when to have him go up against Fashanu and how he had some of his biggest moments in those few moments, I think says a lot. Um, Fashanu, I thought was just not that great. I wasn't that impressed. I, I didn't think that he, now there's not much a left tackle can do. This isn't the olden days where you're just going to run a bunch of like off tackle stuff right behind it. You know what I mean? Like, I don't mm-hmm. know what he was necessarily supposed to do, but I also didn't see him necessarily like repelling. In fact, there was another play. There was a play that they ran. They got like a 34 yard gain on. And I thought, was that Fashanu against Tumaloa on that play too? I think I it was. I think could it have was. almost called it a hold. JT played 65 snaps. So the exact amount of snaps that he played against Notre Dame. For starters, I get why people are so high on Olu in his NFL ceiling. I think he's got a super, super, super high ceiling. Joe Alt's better right now. And I think his, his floor for sure was higher. So JT hit the spin move. And he hits the spin move maybe <laughs> once or twice a game. Yeah, he like picks his moments to hit the spin move. but Which is crazy. <laughs> hit the spin move in the trenches like that. But he hits the, the spin move. So he wins initially. I think this might have been the first time they were matched up on each other. And he's he won. He won the rap. Because Olu can't handle the spin move, just like every other offensive lineman JT has faced this year. I think the only one who's handled it well was Joe Alt. But Olu decides to just tackle him. Because it's, you know what? I've lost. I'm not giving up a sack. I'm just going to tackle you. I remember it in real time thinking, okay, Olu just recovered from the spin move and got the pancake. No, he just tackled him. He just flat out tackled him, and the refs didn't call it or anything like that. But I think it was about nine or ten times where it was JT on Olu. For the most part, I would say it was a healthy back and forth. But when JT needed to make a play, he made a play. And that was the thing even about that. that I put it on Twitter. Part of the reason I put it on Twitter, and I even I sent some of that to the Texers, we saw a Rushman package we hadn't seen yet. We're used to seeing Jack Sawyer and JT on the edge, Caden Curry on the inside with Mike Hall. On that fourth and 30, which is, it's just, I mean, Penn State's it's a prayer at this point anyway, but it's JT on the outside, it's Kenyatta Jackson on the outside, and it's Jack Sawyer and Mike Hall in between. Mike Hall doesn't win, but he's clearly the nose in that situation, so he's probably, he's, he does, he's just dealing with a double team. Jack Sawyer wins, Kenyatta Jackson wins, and JT's just long-arming Olu Fashano into the quarterback. And so it's, I think they gave the sack to Kenyatta Jackson, but they do half sacks. They could have done third sacks in that situation because all three of them touched the quarterback on that play. That spin move is funny. That's like the third week in a row that he's tried to hit the spin move button. And I really wish like, we just talked to Larry Johnson a couple weeks ago, and I'm going to try to remember next time we do get to talk to him. Like, hey, what do you think of that JT2 and Lowhouse spin move? Because I think Larry Johnson does not like the spin move. I, don't, like, I know not. for a fact he does not like any you ever having your back to the quarterback like and I get it even if it's a split second I I guess I get what he's saying there but it's also kind of effective for JT Tumaloa because he is a different athlete than some of the other guys that are up there now he's not a different athlete than some of the other guys who've been up there that Larry Johnson's had before who we also told 
was telling not to do the spin move. So again, some benefit of the doubt there, I suppose. But no, I definitely wrote that down. Like JTT loves the spin move. Larry Johnson hates it. Um, and just a couple other things like um, the Penn State going to that double pass like three times. Way too much. Way too much. Well, but the, what were they supposed to do? Like they couldn't move the ball at all. But I just thought that was that and the fact that it also struck me how like just like again the difference in where these programs are now and i know it's only an eight point game i know it was even closer than that in the fourth quarter this wasn't a route but you definitely did still see some athletic talent differentials in this game and like penn state just could not get to the edge against his defense at all like they were plugging it up in the middle so whether that was williams hall um ty hamilton all those guys in the middle really plugging things up, some help from the linebackers. And then when they tried to get to the edge, there was just nothing there for the most part. And uh, so if you're getting, if you're, if you're, if you're walling off both of those routes and forcing a, an inexperienced quarterback to, to make his hay at that point, you're in good shape. And the, the one thing that I did come out of this with was, just as much as the offense, who we'll talk about soon, has to then now build off of this, there are still ways that this defense is going to have to build off of this and and still be a better version than it was Saturday when it does go up to play Michigan. Like That is just going to be a team that doesn't... That team is better. That team has a quarterback who's better positioned to beat you right now. That team mm-hmm. has better running backs. Like It's very clear now that the Michigan backs are a tier above people like Singleton and Allen. And they are also, I think, not going to shoot themselves in the foot quite the same way that Penn State did with any number of things that happened in this game. And you still have to give Ohio State credit for that because they were they were often happening on third down, like back against the wall. This is a play we need to, to get momentum going if we're Penn State, and we can't make a simple catch. We can't execute this simple block and give Ohio State credit for putting them in those situations of being the team that out-executes. But I don't think Michigan will be quite that uh, sloppy. So it, it's all got to be better. But this is still clearly kind of like a, a, a tentpole game that Ohio State can say, well, this was, an, this was an announcement of sorts. And then now what can they be in five weeks? Keep this group healthy and keep this group continuing to develop some of these younger guys. Because, you're again, Kenyatta Jackson, big role. Caden Curry, big role. You know, Sonny Styles has obviously been starting all year. Uh, Jermaine Matthews can help you when you need it. Like, they're just getting so much quality depth now in this defense. And guys who are every snap, it just seemed like it was somebody new doing their job. The big thing with the Michigan thing is, I think you're right. Donovan Edwards and, and Blake Corum are clearly a tier ahead of where Nicholas Singleton and Katron Allen are. With, I mean, we're seven games into this, and Singleton and Allen haven't gotten going. And Corm and Edwards haven't had to get going all like that because of who they're playing against. But if Ohio State shuts down Michigan's run game that early, like they did against Penn State, I am wondering how that impacts J.J. McCarthy because J.J. is a veteran. He is a second-year starter but has been contributing for three years now and has won a Big Ten title and played in a playoff game. He's done all, He's got all that experience that Drew Aller doesn't have. But 
They made JJ throw at times last year, but it's not like he threw the ball 30 plus times. He threw the ball 24 times and only competed 12 of them last year. He just picked, he just had really good moments where it led to explosive plays. So I am wondering if Ohio State can use this blueprint against JJ McCarthy because Drew Allen was 18 to 42 for 191 in a touchdown that came at the end of the game. If Ohio State makes JJ McCarthy throw the ball 42 times, where he has to push it down the field because they're constantly in third and long. Does he complete seven or 12 more of those passes that Drew Aller didn't complete on Saturday? Because I do think there's a blueprint here to follow, even if the running backs are a tier better. As much as Michigan likes J.J. McCarthy, as much as Jim Harbaugh wants to come in and compare him to Patrick Mahomes or whatever he was doing at Big Ten Media Day, they don't want him to have to throw the ball upwards of 40-some-times, against Ohio mm-hmm. State especially. That tells you that you your running game probably isn't getting it done, or you're just behind in the fourth quarter and you had to throw it. So that number, if they like, regardless of how much more efficient he is with it, I think if you get to that number, it's a good thing for Ohio State. But the Ohio, Ohio State, I I expected Penn State and how well Ohio State defended the run against Penn State to tell me more about what this defense could do against Michigan. And I don't feel like I came out with as much information as I wanted because I didn't come out of this game. Mm. I came out of this game with less respect for Penn State's offense. But some of it is uh, not the fault of these players whose names we're enumerating. Some of it is is enunciating. Some of it is a pretty poorly coached offensive team, I think. Oh, yeah, it was terribly coached. This this game was terribly coached. Shane Franklin, Mike Gears did a terrible job. But I thought that was a good, healthy 40 minutes on the defense who greatly deserved it. They shot down a top 10 team and looked like arguably the best defense in the country doing it. They did exactly what Jim Knowles wanted to do in this game and continue to show that growth in year two of Jim Knowles. We're going to take a break here, and then we're going to flip it to the offensive side, but then also talk about some key moments that I think decided this game that may be a little bit underrated. So I'll reveal what those are when we come back here on Buckeye Talk. Get the text, 614-350-3315. We were sending out a boatload of texts on game day, pregame, during the game. Post game, when we got home, we do surveys. Even on Sunday, Nathan's texting out AP poll stuff. And listen, all other stuff too. When alumni get promoted to offensive coordinators the way that Kenny Guyton did, guess where you're getting that information? Right there in your phone. And then he's going to put it on the site. And then I'm going to mention it on the spot. But listen, it's going through your phone first. Two week free trial, $3.99 after that, 614 350 3315. State might want to talk to Kenny Guyton. <laughs> maybe that'll be the next maybe it'll be the next Ohio State connection that ends up well seriously like he's a wide receivers coach he yeah. is he knows the Big Ten um you wonder like when there's going to be an overall change at Penn State right like because I don't think that's a bad program but they're clearly stuck a little bit like this is a this was kind of a plateau moment for them I feel yeah. like when you when you came in and just had nothing to put on the field offensively in a game of this magnitude. Again, full credit to what Ohio State did too. I'm I I'm not taking away from that. But when you just you had like no juice at all offensively and couldn't get anything going. I mean, even Maryland got things going against Ohio State offensively earlier in a game than Penn State did. Like and that's 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 not supposed to be going on. So maybe Kenny Guy don't get his chance, but for people who don't know, he, he's been the receivers coach at Arkansas. Arkansas is just an absolute offensive dumpster fire this year. I think they were 124th nationally in yards per play. They just got beat 7-3. to three. 
So you, imagine that. Like, if you think Penn State's defense is annoyed this weekend, like you give up seven points and you lose. Uh, it, it's that that's rough. So that's how you get fired. And they fired their offensive coordinator and they promoted Kenny Guyton from wide receiver coach. Only thirty two. And now, even though it's a battlefield promotion, he gets to be an offensive coordinator. And um, I don't know, it's it's a similar age to where similar things like this were happening for Marcus Freeman, like at Purdue, where he got to be the co-defensive coordinator there. That was more, I wasn't a battlefield promotion. That was more of a, an actual promotion and an actual title he got to have. But still, like a young guy making a, a mark in the college ranks. And, and like I said to the texters, like you never know, like, if Brian Hartline's going to get some chance two, three, four years down the line to be a head coach, to be an NFL uh, assistant or something, I don't know. We don't know. We know that there's interest out there, and we'll see what happens. But if if this position were ever open again at Ohio State, that's somebody I think that they would probably have to look at, like just with his background, but the fact that he is you know, building some, some respect. Now, he hasn't necessarily coached on a great staff yet. I think he's been at Colorado State. And he was at Houston, and he was at Louisiana Tech. So, and, and things aren't going great at Arkansas. So maybe if he can, maybe if he can be part of like getting things turned around there, or maybe this audition gets him the next job that would be more of a bridge to Ohio State. I don't want to get too far ahead of praising him too much, but just just good to see a guy at that age, thirty-two, and um, getting getting a little opportunity like this. No quarterback in Ohio State history has thrown more touchdown passes in one game than Kenny Guyton. Now, there are some quarterbacks who have thrown as many touchdown passes in one game as Kenny Guyton, but he was the first to throw six touchdown passes in a game in at Ohio State. of that game. And that was in the first half of that game, man. That was in the first half. So maybe he set the standard for where Ohio State's quarterback room is today. That's a bit of a stretch. But the point of the matter is a very valuable player to Ohio State's program at one point, even as a backup quarterback, he was named a captain. And now he is starting to move up the ranks a little bit on the coaching trust. So that's it's worth mentioning there. I want to save the Marvin Harrison Jr. big picture macro discussion because I think that deserves its own pot at this point. Because some of the scenario of can Marvin Harrison Jr. win award X is starting to play out because of what's going on with Emeka Buka and really just this offense as a whole right now. So I want to save that conversation for later. I think the offensive line took a step forward this week and pass pro, but I think they took another step back in run blocking. I think they if took, that makes sense. Yeah, maybe half a step back. Because, so, I, I wanted to see if on rewatch I felt the same way that I did watching this in real time. So let's switch to one of those to we want to talk about first. Let's talk about the pass pro, because that's the positive thing. Yes. Um, I was. I just went through here. I've got, you can see my notes. People watch, People listening at home can't see these notes. But I've got three three things of notes. Um, one thing I want to notice, like one side was OL and one side was comma cord. And like, by the time you get to the third sheet, which is like late third, fourth quarter, there's like nothing on the comma cord side. I thought he was pretty good down the stretch. I didn't think there were definitely those, those, those rough moments, um, yep. a couple of rough moments, but I thought he didn't do anything dumb uh, late in the game. That would have been a problem. Not that I think he's like, not that I think he is dumb. But you know what I'm saying? Like there weren't any like goofiness. Um, and really only a handful of things when I look back through it. But I was making one of the things I was making a mark on these notes was every time it was a pass, like when was it clean? When was it a clean pocket? And when was it a problem pocket? And out of all the times he threw the ball, and they threw the ball a lot, it was 35 pass attempts, I think, and then two sacks that he took. And I don't think there were any scrambles in there, were there? He didn't really run the ball at all. Um, no, he didn't. He did not run the ball. Just the two sacks were the only two attempts that they gave him. 
So you're talking mm-hmm. about 37 times. And I think there were like the two sacks and maybe, maybe like one or two other plays that I thought he was affected by pressure in a way that affected the, the, the play. And mm-hmm. for what Penn State is as a defense and what that front is, and I know Chop Robinson got hurt, so take him out. But the other guys that they had up front, for, for him to play that clean on pass attempts from beginning to end of that game is impressive, I think, and something that this offensive line deserves a lot of credit for. And I want I'm, I, Ryan Day will be asked about it on Tuesday, I'm sure, because they grade it in a different, you know, they're, 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 they've got PhDs in this, and I'm just trying to be a good uh, finger painter or whatever. But, you yeah. know, uh, they, they, I think he's going to come out of that and be pretty happy with the, the pass protection. And then even one of the pass protection breakdowns was not on the offensive line. It was when, <laughs> when the, like, the other time I laughed out loud on, when we were doing this rewatch was the, the Chip Trainum like, attempted pass protection on that play early in the game oh my where I don't I it was like it, it was like he couldn't like the guy was a ghost and he just couldn't see him because he just it I don't know um he Chip flashed got a, across a hard his, job to do but <laughs> um, he literally flashed across his face and I'm uh, here's the deal I just but but you know, all I'm saying is all I'm saying is we don't have to harp <laughs> on that we don't have to harp on that because it wasn't like a, a, a it, I, it's worth mentioning later I think at some point that if Down Hayden can't play because of pass pro, and yes! Chip Trainum's going to do that in pass pro, then <laughs> what are we doing? Like, what are they going to do? Yes, um, that was so, going to so be that, my whole point. Yes, so it's ironic. It's ironic that we did that on a week where we just found out that the reason Dallin Hayden is fourth is because of pass pro. So, we yes. Made, we've made that point. We'll move on. We'll get back to the positive <laughs> things because I think they, they need to be the bulk of this. But it was – okay. I thought that – do you agree that this was a game where Common Cord was given a clean pocket and in a pretty um, unmolested opportunity to, to do his job. I thought even the two sacks, one was on him and the other one, I think Penn State's just really good. And so that happens sometimes. Yeah. But last week against Purdue, from like the first the first play on, he was throwing off his back foot a lot because he was it felt like he was seeing phantom pressure because he was worried. I don't think he was ever worried. I never saw him habitually throwing off of his back foot. So I do where we were where we were the first four weeks where it's like the run blocking's weird, but the pass pro has kind of been awesome. And it was pretty good on Saturday. Yeah. And and the pass pro has in general been better this season than the run blocking. So uh, Purdue was like this kind of weird step back for them or just a mo- maybe it's actually better to just say it was like an anomalous week like just a week that for, was weird for whatever reason and Purdue did some things maybe that were different than what they were expecting or used to or I don't know um, it was just it hasn't been a, an issue all year and it was maybe that's the best way to say it that after that little flub that little wrinkle it was probably positive for them to see a week like this where especially relative to the competition and I don't think Penn State is especially Penn State doesn't have what Ohio State has, which is clear upper tier all Big Ten defensive tackles. Like Penn State doesn't have that. That showed up in the way Ohio State ran the ball in this game, especially early. But so Ohio State has that that Penn State doesn't. But the ends are legitimately good. And even without Chop Robinson in there for the majority of the game after he got hurt, you've got other guys that you can use there. And I thought that Josh Simmons and Josh Fryer 
did a good job keeping them in check for the most part. Uh, Josh Simmons, best offensive line grade, I think, on this team on Saturday. Was that correct? That is correct. Yeah, he was. And I think that's I think I th- that's a first. <laughs> well, he's been yeah, because he's been two or three a lot of the year. Here, here are the grades: Josh Simmons, sixty-six point five. That's his overall Josh grade. Bro- yeah, he actually had a better run block grade than than pass block. He did run block grade sixty-seven point seven, pass block grade fifty-six point three. I'll just read off the other ones too. Josh Fryer, his run block grade. 61.6 pass blocking grade was 61 overall grade 62.8 donovan jackson i think had his best pass pro game maybe of his career which is uh, to your point penn state most of their star powers on the end and not on the interior but still uh, donovan jackson was kind of awesome run blocking 55.7 but pass blocking 87.3 overall 61.6 matthew jones who I want to bring him up when I talk about angry Ryan Day popping his head out again because it was hilarious. <laughs> Pass blocking grade, 87.3. Run blocking grade, 52.3. Overall grade, 59.0. And then Carson Hensman, lowest graded offensive player, 45.3 overall. 46.7 in pass pro, 50.4 in run blocking. And obviously they used Luke Montgomery on a couple of snaps and those heavy sets that they do as well. Yeah. I thought Carson Hensman actually had some good moments early in this game, but couldn't sustain it. And I didn't think this as a whole, this offensive line didn't sustain its early successes running the ball. And they were clear successes Mm -hmm. early on. I thought there were everything coming out of that Penn state or coming out of the Maryland game was like, can this team get guys to the second level and block? And you saw Mm -hmm. it happen against Purdue. And I thought you saw it start to, it really looked like it could have been like, this could have been a, a big week where we thought this offensive line took a step forward. And maybe in the long run, we will look back in some ways and, and see it as like a transitional week, but it didn't, they couldn't sustain what they were doing early on. Early on, they were doing a good job getting running, getting offensive linemen up into linebackers and the running backs train them. And mine Williams, both, I thought were doing a good job of, of seeing the holes and at times cutting it back into the better holes and just making good runs, making good cuts and being tough with it, being strong. Ohio state was the like, go call Lou Holtz. Like Ohio state was by far the tougher team in this game. I thought, and even I say that even as we're having a a discussion um, or we'll have a discussion about the, the way Penn state was able to eventually control the ground game. But the tone that was set at the beginning of this game as to which team was tougher was clearly Ohio State. The way that they were stuffing on defense that we already talked about, but the way that they were like being able to run the ball early on in this game, I thought also helped set that tone. And even if they couldn't sustain it, it probably had some long-range effect on that outcome too. I sent this to our Texers with Mayan Williams because I think you're right. they started off pretty well. And it, it's almost like before Chip Trainum messed up in pass pro and after Chip Trainum messed up in pass pro because it's almost when they stopped running the ball well, which is uh, those two things have nothing to do with each other. Mine, it's mine just ran it okay at first, too. Mine ran it mine okay. Mine started very, very well. And his, he had a long of 12, but 24 carries for 62 yards and a touchdown. You take out that carry, that 12 yard carry, it's 23 carries for 50 yards. I think my, I, I, I figured out mine's problem and maybe I'm late to this party, so please let me know if I'm late. I sent this to the sector, 614-350-3315. Sign up to get what I think is insight with this point. 
Mayan Williams is a very physical back. I think we can all agree with that. That's a guy who looks to he seeks out contact. What did Marshawn Lynch say? He wants to run down your face. He now there was obviously some other words in there, but he wants to run through your face when he runs the football. I think sometimes it's a really good thing. Like it was a really good thing against Northwestern when there was no chance of them running the ball, being able to throw the ball last year. You had to run the ball. It was great then. I thought it was great against Notre Dame when that drive, when they just kept giving Mayan Williams the ball time after time after time. It was great against Georgia when he got that goal line touchdown. But I think there's other times where him being so willing to look out contact gets in the way of him having a quality run. Because there were a lot of times when there's not a hole there, but you can see his mind churning up. I'm going to make a hole. I'm just going to jam myself in here. And if there's nothing there, then I'm going to bounce outside. But sometimes if you just bounce it outside, there's an easy four yards. But he's so busy trying to force himself through the hole that by the time he kicks it outside, there's nothing there. And there was a lot of times I thought on Saturday, both in the rewatch and then also when we were watching it live where he's getting pushed all the way out to the out-of-bounds line and ends up with nothing. And I think there were about four or five of those types of runs where just bounce it outside or just hit the hole and don't be always so concerned with trying to run through somebody's face. Yeah, there were a couple where I thought that there was a cutback that he didn't take or just a, an easier um, – if it, whenever he if, – if you get him going horizontal, it's a problem. And – I, there's times though where I also think that that is like so just don't call those plays that are going to end up with him going horizontal like that's too easy that's too simple to say and they they have to operate in a way that and this goes back like Tony Alford's been talking about this for as long as I've been covering this team that you need they operate from a concept where backs have to be all around backs because when you put a back on the field who can't do certain things, then you are telegraphing to the other team what you are going to do. So I get that. I get it. And if Trevion Henderson was in this game, maybe it, it, some of those those outside runs look different. I don't know. But with Mayan Williams, I just don't think it's his it's his strong point. And they get it. That was where they were getting very uh, strung out and and stuffed uh, at times on Saturday. So I think that you're still seeing an offense in progress between who's healthy, how well is this offensive line going to block, how well is this running game or these running backs going to uh, execute their responsibilities, and then how is Ryan Day ultimately going to call a game. Like all four of those things are still a very fluid situation. Like I don't feel like we know what this team's ultimate identity should be in, in those situations because you don't know week to week is Trevin Henderson going to play is he not I as much as I said what I just said about how they want those all-around backs there are things that Trevin Henderson can do that Mayan Williams can't and uh I, I really thought it might hurt them even in this game to not have a, a screen game the, that they could use the way that you can use it with Trevin Henderson and then like on that first drive they did that little screen to chip train him for a nice gain. And I was like, oh, maybe they'll just keep going to that uh, against this um, against this edge rushing talent that Penn State has. But then, uh, to their credit, they didn't have to. Because I thought that, that for the most part, uh, Simmons and Fryer and did a good job. So they didn't have to go to that well as much. Um, I just want to see, as I think everyone who's observing this team is, like it just has to start being more consistent. You could see 
um, at a point in this game where it just got very Maryland again, like three yards, zero yards, one yard, two mm. yards, one yard, zero yards, loss of yards. Um, and if you're, they're going to come a time, it's going to come a week where they play an offense too good to have your defense stagnate like, or your offense stagnate like that. And the reason they know this is because it's happened each of the past two years at some point in those Michigan games, and they haven't been able to get it back. So what can you do over the next four weeks to find that that switch that just gets you, again, the, the difference between three or more per carry and the difference between three or less per carry is massive. And there was too much three or less and not enough three or more in this game again for the second half of it really starting in about the second quarter. I thought mm-hmm. it got bogged down a little bit and they just, they never really unlocked it. So it, it, when you've got Marvin Harrison jr, that solves a lot of problems. And that was maybe the thing that it solved the most was that you could always rely on him for those big plays, but it may be the next team defends him better. Um, and you won't have that opportunity. Some positive things here. Kyle McCord is awesome when they need him to be awesome. It's just, how do we get him to do that for 60 minutes? Because he ends the game 10 of 12 for 155 yards and gets his final throw is the Marvin Harrison Jr. 18 yards touch, touchdown, which I thought was a well-designed play, well-executed play. It's a mess route. Mess routes, man. They work for Ohio State. Michigan knows all about that. That's why Don Brown's not their defensive coordinator anymore. I, but I, I, yeah, Marvin Harrison Jr. over the middle of the field today. Like we, I thought that that was an area that they. That, Penn State was maybe a little soft, like linebacker, second mm-hmm. level, um, doing getting, just being able to get stuff over the middle of the field, and he feasted there. Mm-hmm. He feasted there yeah. on, on yeah. Saturday. Marvin Harrison Jr. on crossing routes was just – Penn State didn't really know what to do with it. They 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 messed that up. But this mesh route specifically, what I liked about it is it's him and Cade running mesh routes opposite sides. Cade and – Marvin time it up perfectly. So I think it's Kalen King who's covering Marvin Harrison Jr., but he gets mixed up with Cade Stover and the guy covering Cade Stover. So now Marvin Harrison is just free. And then special shouts out to Cardinal Tate, who I thought had a pretty quality day as well for finishing things up and letting Marvin Harrison Jr. get into the end zone there. But this is the second straight big game where Kyle McCord shows up when he absolutely needs to show up. And that's a skill. That's something that you either have it or you don't as a quarterback, regardless of what level we're talking about. So the fact that he continues to do that is a good sign. Now, if we can get him to show up consistently in quarters, I think he starts games off well when they're trying to get Marvin going. So his first quarters are typically good and his fourth quarters are typically good. But it's that middle section, that second and third quarter, when things can kind of go awry with some of his decision making, but more importantly, just some of his throws. And so that's where I think his next step is because. When they need to go win a game, I don't. I have full faith that Kyle McCord can lead this team down the field and win them a game on a drive when he needs to go do it. I just, I want to see him in those positions where if he does it in those moments, he doesn't have to do it in the fourth quarter. So they started off this game, and we had speculated coming in, like, would this be, would they come Georgia with this? Would they come Peach Bowl and and be pass forward? And they were early on in the first quarter. It was fourteen pass attempts. 13 actual attempts and a sack that they took 14 to seven runs. So two to one, they were two thirds throwing the ball. And then it flipped into like their more conventional distribution, right? It was like 10 runs to 10, 10 
runs to eight passes for the next two quarters and then like 11 to eight for the third or something for the fourth. I mean, something like that. So it definitely got a little bit more conventional as the game went on. But I also thought that, so two things, because he came out and I know that they ended up like stalling out and having to kick a field goal on that first drive, but like he came out clicking and like they were, they were running some plays that were sort of set up. And one of them was even just sort of like an extension of the run, really that, that sort of roll out to the left where you just pitch and catch to the guy. Like some of those plays are, are extensions of the run game more than they are like a horizontal or a vertical passing attack, obviously, but it got him in a rhythm early on. And I do wonder if you just approach a full game like that, what sort of a rhythm he can get into? Because it has—it's not the first time that you've seen something like that. He obviously got in a rhythm in the final drive against Notre Dame, and it just clicked for him. And you've got to be able to run the ball effectively. But I do wonder if you come out and make it uh, make it a, an offense that uses the pass to set up the run, if that might be playing into his strengths um, in a real way, or maybe he maybe he even needs it more than someone like C.J. Stroud needed it. Maybe C.J. Stroud could turn it on and off a little bit easier than what Kyle McCord can. I thought there was one play in this game that I thought, oh, C.J. Stroud, that would have been not what happened. And it was Mm -hmm. the sack that he took um, right down in front of their own end zone. And he had like a good probably four seconds to do something with that. And they were showing on the replay, like, well, it looked like, you know, probably just no receivers open, but then they show the replay and like, no, there were like three receivers <laughs> that he probably mm-hmm. could have taken a shot at. Like, I'm not saying it's, it's not, it's not all 22. I, the, so what he sees also behind a, a, a line of super tall, big dudes is different than what the cameras are showing. So all, all caveats there, but there was space that you could have taken a shot with one of those guys. And I think, what McCord doesn't quite have yet, as he probably shouldn't, six games in, is the same anticipation and um, being able to to pre-see things um, or, or have faith that you don't even have to see it quite the same way that Stroud did, like by his second season and certainly by the end of his second season, by the, by the time that Georgia game came around. So that's all of this has to sync up, right? Is, as we've talked about before, the Georgia game wasn't just in a vacuum Ryan Day deciding mm-hmm. to throw the ball. It was the running game was compromised by injuries, and it was the position that they were in as a team. Now, I don't know if anybody noticed this, but the line on the Ohio State-Michigan game, the early line on that game, went to seven points. Michigan is a seven-point favorite right now on, at some books for that game on November 25th. Like there are things about this matchup that are starting to resemble that in the same way. This team can't run the ball that well. It can't really expect to go out and just grind away at Michigan with the running game. And it was because of personnel against Georgia, it's uh, or injuries against Georgia against Michigan. It's just going to be because that's what this team is potentially. And you've got Marvin Harrison Jr. and want the ball in his hands as much as possible. And you've got this quarterback who now has to, I think, over these next four weeks, just keep refining things and start to show some of that anticipation so that Ryan Day has the trust in him to go do that. Because I think you also saw in this game, like that decision at the end of the first half, I thought was maybe Ryan Day being risk-averse in general, but I think it was also being specifically risk-averse because of what had happened earlier in that quarter with Kamal Court. 
and like maybe he just wanting it. to yeah <laughs> not wanting he, something he crazy to happen the, or whatever he said yeah no yeah so, he he said he said uh, the fumble was in the back of my mind because if that doesn't happen maybe he goes for it but i get it even outside of the fumble given the way the game was going i think it was his answer was very much partially well i I wrote about it. I asked him the question. I can just tell you guys exactly what the answer was. Yeah. Yeah. Just read it. I didn't want anything crazy to happen. The fumble return for a touchdown was in the back of my mind. I thought the defense was playing well. I just didn't want to take any chances. It was conservative on my end. I agree. But the number one goal we talk about is to be one and zero. This is a top 10 game. And at that moment, I felt like the right thing to do was to take a knee. I think it was a, Part, oh, Kyle McCord just did something crazy, so it's probably best we just go into halftime. I settle him down, and then we come back out, especially since we're getting the ball first. That's a better way to go about it. I respect that. Very responsible decision by Ryan Day. Very responsible. But also, that's understanding the vibe of the game. You mentioned it. I thought this game was very Penn State, Ohio State 2019-ish, where Ohio State was in control for the entire game in 2019, if you remember. Penn State just had that ridiculous 17-point third quarter because Justin Fields and J.K. Dobbins forgot how to take care of the ball. But other than that, Ohio State controlled that game defensively. I thought Ohio State defensively controlled the game on Saturday. And so because of that, you don't have to press it the way that in 21 and 22, he probably does press it because he has no choice. He's got to score. You have to keep scoring because your defense is not going to get stops. When your defense is getting stops at the rate that this defense is getting stops, Ryan Day, who even jokes like, yeah, I can enjoy winning a game defensively. I can allow my defense to carry us a little bit and not feel like I have to go score every single time. Not because of, not out of an aggressive mindset, but out of a desperation mindset. Now he can be aggressive looking to score, not desperate. I get it. I just feel like you've got three timeouts that's a lot of time. And the clock's going to stop on yeah. first downs inside of 42 seconds. And I know yeah. that they weren't, they were pretty far back. And he did say, like, well, if it was like 15 yards if farther downfield, maybe yeah. he you said approach that it differently. They were at the 17, and he said, like, if we were at like the 30 something, and, and, and even that, yeah, you know, place on the field matters. And he said, he even admitted that maybe I could have ran the ball once to see if we could pop something. So he, he, he was. Cognizant that of how uh, how conservative this decision was. These running backs have not been um, fumble prone running backs. Mm-hmm. The quarterback, I wouldn't say he's fumble prone, but has has given you some flashes of that. But your quarterback, your running backs haven't. <laughs> and but I also wonder. There's a part of him that's like, okay, you know, what would be a really safe play there that you could try to spring for something is like a screen. So like run mm-hmm. some kind of run run one of those screens that you were running all day for Marvin Harrison Jr. One of those like slip screens, those bubble things or the inside ones, or or just run a conventional screen to these running backs and see if you can set something up. But do you trust your outside blocking right now to like not have that play blow up because that's been an issue at times? So I don't know. It was a little bit of an indictment of a couple of things to me, and I think I would say this, like similar situation at Michigan on November twenty fifth. 42 seconds left, three timeouts at the 17-yard line. Should he still take a knee? No, 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 no. no. That's a different game. Yeah, that's a whole different environment, whole different game. And you're on the road. you got to push it. I I think it's that. And I think if Travion Henderson had played on Saturday, I think he would have given the ball to Travion Henderson and seen if he could pop a run. 
Because then you're talking Maybe. about a home run hitting running back that might give you some. But I do think this perfect scenario of Kyle McCord just did something that's a no-no. You're up, your defense is playing well, and you're down two of your most explosive weapons in Travion Henderson and Emeka Buka. Call it a day and go inside. But no, if this is Michigan, if this exact same scenario presents itself, Ohio State's up four points with the ball. They're getting the ball after halftime. They have three timeouts in 50 seconds on like the 20-yard line. He's got to push it. There's no excuse. You have to keep scoring because that's a rivalry game now. That's a whole different set of rules. It's like I know it's only the 17. You're only at the 17, but you're only going to need to get to like the 30. And Fielding's to have got a, a leg. Plausible field goal attempt. Now he missed from 45. Mm-hmm. Day said something in in, uh, in an interview 60. earlier this week. He said he, he, he said made 60 to 60. 65 or something like, like okay, that. Okay, yeah. well, was that like in the woody with no with no rush, <laughs> or was that outside? Because the wind was an issue at times. Uh, no, no, no. He said he bit. said. He said the win was in his favor when he made that kick, so it yeah, was outside. I bet it was. So I, I'll be, I'm, I got nothing against Jaden Fielding. I'll just believe it when I see it. So I mean, make one from forty-five, and I'll believe you can make one from sixty. You know what I'm saying? So um, I just think that I was surprised that he was that conservative. That a guy who at one point in his career was the oh we're going to do this onside kick against Maryland and um, we're going to they're going to approach that Georgia game the way they did, and then to I know it's situational, and I've even defended in the past like some of those more conservative decisions. This one was a little bit too far across the conservative post for me. I would have rather seen you at least do just try a little wrinkle. Like, don't you have like a play, like a jailbreak play or something that's like, well, this is what we do when we're just trying to hit this weird home run. It's like a safe, high mm-hmm. possibility play where it's like, well, the floor is really high, and most of the time it might get nothing, but that one time you break it, which I think is which I think is those outside screens, right? Like We used to talk mm-hmm. about that with Doug all the time. It's like those long handoffs because th- that's part of the calculus there. It's like, okay, maybe it only gets you four yards, six yards, five yards, four yards, but once in a while it really springs for something. Like maybe you could have done that. Okay, let's take one last break, and then we're going to come back, and I'm going to talk about – I think two plays, no, not two plays, two scenarios that if these go a little differently, maybe Penn State walks out of Columbus with a win. Maybe they don't. Nathan might not agree, but we'll see when we come back here. I think I might. And we're back on Buckeye Talk. Nathan, I think, obviously, Kyle McCord's snafu that led to the 60-yard scoop and score that got taken off the board. If the refs don't throw a flag in that situation, we're talking about a whole different football game. But I think there's two others. And they're special teams related. Kinda. So I'm gonna paint a picture first. This is, I think, the worst drive Ohio State had all day, by the way. And shout out to Jesse Mirko for making it not matter as much as it should have mattered. Well, I'll give him I'll give him credit for not <laughs> it was a fine punt, but go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> okay, yeah, that's fair. That's fair. We can talk about it. So they start the drive off, Mayan Williams four yard run. So okay. They're on schedule. That's what you need to be. And then they run it again. And they're in tempo at this point. Ohio State's trying to get going. Offensively, they're in tempo. Mayan Williams again, two-yard run. And then they're in tempo steal. It's third and four. And they throw a pass to Marvin Harrison Jr. And it's like they're rolling now. What do you think of Caleb King? Let's let's take a quick pause. Well, yeah, what do you we think? I forgot about that. Uh, I thought he was um, anonymous. Like, he didn't come up. He only came up when he okay. was getting beat or making committing penalties. yeah, right? yeah. yeah. I thought yeah, it, it was, was uh, like there was no question. 
like we we talked about that as going in as and I think we all thought Marvin Harrison Jr. was a better receiver than Kalen King was a corner. But we talked about this as like this is a matchup of like two guys who might be first round NFL draft picks. And mm-hmm. I came out of this with there was no question who won that matchup. Like Kalen King was I thought Johnny Dixon played better than Kalen King did. I thought Kalen King was kind of a non-factor. We just got done talking about in the first part of this pod how impressive it was with Ohio State's cornerbacks, especially Jordan Hancock, only 18 yards on seven targets. Kalen King, eight targets. Six of them were caught for 90 yards. And I'm pretty sure the bulk of that is Marvin Harrison Jr. because he was following him around. And Marvin Harrison, he got asked about that after the game. And he said, the thing about following is when you're doing that, it's a man tell. Like we can tell you're in man coverage when you're doing that. So there's pros, the cons, the following, which yeah. is probably why you don't see it that often in college football in comparison to the NFL. You got to be damn good at it to follow a guy around because you're already telling an offense that you're playing man coverage. But I agree with you. This is the second straight year in a row where we have come into a Ohio State Penn State game intrigued by the matchup that was going to be on Marvin Harrison Jr. And Marvin Marvin Harrison Jr. just had a field day. And like you kind of left. Joey Porter ended up not being a first rounder. He was a second round draft pick. Who knows what Kalen King ends up being. But listen, the last time we thought a first round corner went up against Marvin Harrison Jr. He didn't play well. He didn't play well. So it's the same thing this time around. Back to this play. The third and four completion of Marvin Harrison Jr. is for eight yards. And they're trying to keep going in, in, in tempo. And then... Matthew Jones gets a penalty. He gets a false start penalty. Funniest thing about that penalty is they immediately go to Ryan Day, who like breaks down. It's the, <laughs> he just breaks down as if I can't handle this anymore. I finally got this team exactly where I want them, and then you do that. And so now they have to restart this entire process over. So it's first and 15, Mayan Williams run. And so now they're tempoing again. They're trying it again. Ryan Day is still going at it. So then he gets to second and 13. And then Kyle McCourt completes a pass to Julian Fleming for 14 yards. And Josh Simmons gets a holding penalty. I wish they would have went back to Ryan Day again. He probably would have had a heart attack over there. But he's just, he's losing it on the sideline, Nathan. He's losing it because he's finally got a chance to really get something cooking offensively. And then two penalties literally just kills the drive. Because now it's second and 22. Kyle McCord gets sacked. Third and 27, they run it because they're just trying to get out from the end zone. Mayan My, Williams gets nothing. And then Jesse Mirko has a 72-yard punt because Penn State's punt returner doesn't go try to catch the ball and just yeah. flips field position. So what I can't tell, and, and James Franklin was asked about this after the game, and he basically said, I didn't go say anything to him because he had to get back on the field anyway, and I didn't need to go tell him that he had made a mistake. So right there he's telling you that everyone's admitting that the wrong thing happened. But I can't tell if, did he lose the ball? Did he lose track of the ball? Or did was the ball kicked in such a way? And it didn't, watching it with our eyes, with my eyes, it doesn't look like some kind of a, a, a fancy kick by any means. It looks like it's, it's a little bit of a line drive almost. Like it didn't have a a lofting trajectory, but it had to go a long way. He was really trying to put a boot on it. So that should be more of a liner. Right. And it just, he just, he just didn't catch it. And then sometimes if you don't catch it, that's the nature of football. Sometimes you don't catch it and it, it hits at the right angle and it bounces your way. 
that didn't happen here. It bounced. It just bounced and rolled and rolled and rolled. And so instead of having the ball around midfield, they end up with the ball like the 24. Like if he had just fielded that, if he just caught a, called a yep. fair catch and fielded it, which actually also would not have been the right decision because he had room to run. Yeah. But if he had just yeah. ca- called a fair catch and caught it, they would have had the ball like 20 yards upfield. And now you've got Ohio State's defense not with its back against the wall, but you're working with a short field. Now if you can just get two first downs, you're putting points on the board, and at that point in the game, every point is 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 gold. There's a chance it probably would have been the best field they had all day. Here's where their, their, their possession started from. They had 14 drives. Here's where they started. 25, 25, they're 38, they're 24, they're 13, they're 25, they're 6, they're 31, they're 24, which is where the punt happened. They're 2, they're 48, they're 37, they're 30, they're 27. So they were in favorable territory to start to drive one other time and ends up in a three and out. But that they would have been at like their own 48, maybe even the 50. If he actually, if he doesn't fair catch it and get and take some of that room to run if he had in that situation, I don't. It, it probably doesn't change the outcome, but it at least makes things a little bit more competitive at a point where it was already teetering of whether or not Penn State was going to be able to do anything offensively. So there's that one. The reason why that matters is Ohio State had only had two three and outs. They had it on Penn State's first drive where they allowed six yards the entire drive. And then they had it on, I think it was the fifth drive, the first drive of the second quarter, where they allowed four yards. After that Jesse Mirko punt, Penn State goes two yards, three and out punt, nine yards d- down on downs, and then they go three yard, three plays, zero yards, punt. And it's where the other one, the other important situation pops up here. And big kudos to the defense again. Big kudos. They get a stop deep in Penn State territory. And they're about to give Ohio State's offense beautiful field position. And then, I mean, the ball just bounces the wrong way. I don't want to fault. Parker Fleming has done – the special teams have been all over the place this year, but I'm not going to blame Parker Fleming because the ball bounced in a weird way and it hits Lorenzo Styles' leg and makes it live. It's not like Jaden Ballard muffed the punt. The ball just bounces weird, hits Lorenzo Styles' leg, puts Penn State's offense right back on the field, and that's where they – I think they got it at the – I think that's when they got it at the 48. And Ohio State just gets their third straight three and out. So it's almost like it didn't even matter at that point because Ohio State's offense is right back on the field. I think the punt, but I also think Ohio State's defense basically erasing a very crazy moment in the game that was still in the balance is very important. Uh, Jim Knowles, I think, even referred to that as like his favorite sequence of the game. And not that he was happy that the, the punt thing happened, mm-hmm. but like it was his favorite thing the defense maybe did all day was to like make that stop. And that they they had him pinned pretty good. I mean, for where they were punting from, and then mm-hmm. to have that happen and then have to turn right around and get another stop was huge. I mean, that's that's how you win these games. It's just sort of there was a certain relentlessness to this defense. And I know that Penn State did eventually put that drive together in the fourth quarter and get a touchdown. Ryan Day said, "Well, they shouldn't have even been on the field at that point." Like he felt that, that was more an offensive failure, and I think he's probably right. And yeah. that should have probably been it probably should have been a twenty to six final at worst. And like, mm-hmm. how would that have looked like nationally? Like twenty to six, you just went in and beat a top ten team, and 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 to that extent, um, maybe they would have had four first place votes this week. Instead <laughs> of um, uh, I just and I think he's right. I think that that's again that is because this is harder. This is a harder thing to compare, and maybe it's not fair. But, like, last year, whether it was Michigan, whether it was Georgia, 
whether you could even potentially say the Maryland game, like it did seem to kind of cascade a little bit at the end of the year. Like it didn't feel like they had that same resiliency on defense that sometimes that it, they, when something went wrong, they didn't have a way to shut it off. They had to kind of just ride out the wrong thing and then hope the offense would bounce back. And now I feel like they have answers for the wrong things. And, and even the way that the rest of this game flowed, you could say that because they had this really weird sequence where they were giving up big plays on first down. Like I think the first four plays of the game that they gave up of 15 yards or more were all on first down and like six of the first seven or something like that. Like they were giving up these big plays on first down, but then the next first down very often, there was a couple plays, you know, obviously Penn State did drive for those field goals, but there were a lot of times like they might give up that one play and then, but the next first down play was like an incompletion where they stuffed those running backs and now it's second and seven. And now you've just put yourself in an advantageous situation. And then they kept finishing it off on third down, just a masterclass there. So I think that though that play exemplified just the, the way that this defense is pretty able to wipe the slate clean before every play. It's just like every play is its own game. Like what happened on the play before doesn't matter. Just go out and win this play. You win this play enough times in a row. That's how you hold That's how you hold a team to 200 and whatever, 249 yards, whatever Penn State had the other day. It felt like that last drive when Ohio State gave up a touchdown. It was, they were ready to be done for the day and they thought they were done for the day. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, wait, now we got to go back on the field and get a stop, which is, yeah. it is what it is. That's but it's dangerous. Like, I mean, if, if you don't recover that onside is. kick, then, then now yeah, things yeah. get hairy. But <laughs> yeah. I, I even told, I even told Andrew, Andrew has to write a game story that posts right at the buzzer. And uh, I even like leaned over to him. I was like, listen, Having been through this sort of thing before, more in my basketball career uh, coverage than football, I'm like, listen, I know this game is over, but start writing something as if it wasn't over, <laughs> just so you have your butt mm-hmm. covered and and you're not you're not tempting the football gods by dismissing the opportunity chance it could happen. And like very quickly after that, enough, it, it was over. But um, yeah, it, it it didn't again just a game that I never really felt that Penn State threatened like it was close it was genuinely close and Ohio State Mm -hmm. couldn't afford a big mistake that would have thrown it the other way and then that almost happened but once they got through that little hiccup uh, it just this was a game that that Ohio State was in control of and I think that the committee will look favorably on that and I I it's going to be a very interesting uh, conversation 10 days from now or whatever nine days from now when the committee is deciding whether Ohio State or Michigan deserves to be seated higher in that first rankings reveal. Marvin got asked about that, too. He was like, yeah, he told Carnell Tate that they were probably going to kick it to his side because they're not kicking the ball to Marvin Harrison Jr. They're not worried about his hands. But so and then they ended up tapping, they ended up kicking it to Carnell Tate's side. But yeah, I get, I've covered basketball games. It's it's fun thinking a game is over just for a shot to go in at the weird weirdest moment. Now you have a whole different game story. But that'll wrap up this rewatch. Good rewatch. Ohio State improves to 7-0, 20-12 win over Penn State. And now it's on the Wisconsin. First time since 2017, Ohio State will go to Camp Randall. That game's at 7.30 on NBC or Peacock. For those of you who want to see if Peacock has improved its broadcasting abilities, but it will be on normal cable television on NBC as you're listening to this, Andrew and I are recording the recruiting pod for Tuesday, coming off of 
probably the only really, really big recruiting weekend of the regular season for Ohio State, where it was north of 80 people across multiple recruiting classes on campus to watch Ohio State's win over Penn State. And then on Tuesday, we'll be back at the Woody talking with Ryan Dan Chin Knowles as they prepare to take on the Badgers. Sign up for the text, 614-350-3315. All information, all news, all analysis coming to your phone first before anywhere else. Two-week free trial, $3.99 after that. For Nathan Baird, I'm Stephen Means, and that was Buckeye Talk.